Bailey Ramirez is a single mother of three children from Southern California who overcame adversity after adversity after adversity in her life. Now she is a professional model, influencer, life coach, fitness coach, health and wellness mentor, entrepreneur, and healer who loves to help others. In this episode, she shares about her extreme adversity after experienced abuse, rape, childhood trauma, starting over from nothing after leaving abuse, facing homelessness, and raising three children on her own. Well, let's cue the intro and jump straight into the conversation. So the big question is this, how is it possible that shy and socially awkward individuals like us can have the confidence to approach a stranger and strike a meaningful conversation? To have the ability to network and connect with yourself so that you can network and connect with others. To not only survive, but thrive in this noisy world and be the connector you're meant to be. And at the same time, be the truest, most authentic version of yourself. That's the question and this podcast will give you the answer. My name is Ping Hendra and welcome to Network and Connect Podcast. Where I was, was like most people find themselves these days, broken, lost, confused, um, just very uh, disconnected from my own ability to, or my own potential uh, because of some of the traumas and the things that I have uh, been through in my life. And um, where I am now is um, very much healed and very much um, enjoying my human experience by uh, having gotten to a place where I've learned how to um, not necessarily master life, but really master the roller coaster of life, um, which is inevitable for all of us to to be on. So that's where I'm at right now. And I'm really a really excited for where I'm going and the, the many, many people that I've helped and the many people that I am looking forward to being able to help by sharing my story. So you say earlier that you're broken, lost, confused, disconnected, and you mentioned a little bit about trauma. What's going on uh, previously that led to you feeling like that? Um, well, I, I come from a very long life of trauma. Uh, starting all the way back in my childhood, as early as I can remember around the age of, um, I felt like it was the age of four, just because of how young I was. So time is a little bit skewed. Um, my, my parents went through an extremely volatile divorce, um, where I ended up having a, a stepfather who came into my life rather quickly. And um, he was very abusive. Uh, and he sexually preyed on me as a child, um, and um, and uh, he, he was very physically abusive. It was a, it, it is quite a story. My my life is really a series of one trauma after another, after another, after another, after another, until about two thousand. Actually, right up until this year, um, I'm going to be all the way honest um, with you. I haven't. It actually took me a while to realize that my life has been nothing but a series of traumas until the beginning of um, 2020, when I was finally no longer homeless um, with my children. And so, I hope you guys are, you know, buckled in because this is definitely a story to tell. Ping, if it's okay with you, I could definitely go ahead and begin. Please. 
My story begins um, when I was a, a little girl. Um, my I was living in Reseda, California. Um, I grew up here. I was born and raised in California. And my parents were married. I was a Jehovah's Witness when I was a little kid. And what happened was my, my parents, um, they didn't tell me much about their relationship when I was younger. So, you know, in my mind, we were just having a happy little home life and, you know, nothing bad was going on. My mom had an in-home daycare. And um, from my limited memory when I was a kid, I remember one day um, where it all started was I came home and um, all I can remember was my parents screaming. Um, I remember there was a lot of yelling and one of the only the things that I can remember so clearly is when my my dad picked up my mom and threw her on the couch. Um, I don't remember what was said. Uh, all I remember is that me and my brothers were were standing there and um, we were crying and kind of like didn't know what to do. And it was the first time in my life that I ever felt so incredibly helpless. I didn't know what to do. I thought it was my fault. Um, I thought it was my fault uh, that my dad walked out um, at that at that moment, and he didn't come back for a long time. And I didn't understand it. Um, we had a two story house, and my dad had this red truck. He had a red Toyota truck, and he used to always come home, and I would I would sit up in in their office, and I would it looked over the driveway, and I would wait for my dad to come home, and um, every night he would come home, and then after that he didn't he didn't come home, uh, and it it makes me a little sad to remember because I remember waiting at that window for a long time wondering where my dad went and why he wasn't home. And then it felt within no time at all, almost weeks, uh, my stepfather came into the home and um, he, uh, we had to call him dad. Um, we didn't know who this man was. Um, and uh, all of a sudden he was disciplining us and um, he was allowed to say things to us. I remember him telling me explicitly, if you don't call me dad, I'm going to call you uh, Miss Piggy is what he said to me. So he was, he was a very scary man. Uh, he was an extremely scary man. Um, he was actually the first person that I ever experienced um, what's called Stockholm syndrome, which is where you, uh, you, it's the phenomena where you become attached to your uh, abuser. At the time, we were Jehovah's Witnesses, and he was not. So in my little mind, not only did was my father gone, um, but now there was this new man in my life, and I had to call him dad, and my dad was gone, and then we switched religions. And um, as a Jehovah's Witness, you don't celebrate Christmas, Thanksgiving, you don't celebrate holidays. Um, you don't celebrate birthdays. Women are not allowed to go to college. You're not allowed to speak to or have friends outside of that religion. Um, you're not allowed to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. And um, here it's a pretty big thing. So, um, you know, I was so used to this, <clears throat> this religion and 
to go outside of this religion was to go to hell is, is what they teach you. They, they literally put the fear of God in you. And so, um, all at once, my, my life just was, uh, this, this chaos that I didn't understand. We were asked if we wanted to celebrate Halloween and it was the scariest thing because Halloween in our religion, um, meant you were going to hell. And so is it's a pagan holiday. So <clears throat> in, my ability to cope, I had to cope with a lot of really big things at a young age. And within, within, I, I don't know how long it was. Um, it, it was really fast. Um, we moved my, um, stepfather and my mom moved us away. Um, we didn't know where my dad had to hire a private investigator to try and find us. Um, my stepfather tried to, uh, give, change my last name from my my father's last name to his last name. Um, and they tried to adopt us. He tried to adopt us without telling uh, my dad. And so there was this uh, power struggle between my parents after my dad was able to locate us where we saw him being arrested um, for trying to get to us. Um, and we even had to go to court and testify and at, at that point, I remember I blocked so many things out because it was so traumatic losing my dad um, to a point where me and my dad actually don't even have a relationship like that these days because um, I didn't grow up with him. I grew up with another man who inserted himself in my life as my father instead of me being able to grow up with my own father. And it's something I've had to deal with um, a lot. So... When I was a kid, um, I, I remember going to court and I remember my dad would never, he would never speak ill of my mom, even though he definitely had tumultuous feelings towards it. He would always tell us kids, you know, when we went to court, he said, he pulled us out into the hallway and he said, I want you to take your mother's side. I don't want you to be in the middle of this. He never wanted us to be in the middle of it. Um, and, um, Again, it was very difficult. At a very early age, I developed suicidal thoughts. Um, I was, uh, when I was in school, I was um, bullied very, very heavily. So when I, when my parents moved me out here to Palmdale, where I currently live now, it was, um, it, 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 we, it was difficult. Uh, it was very difficult. I didn't, I didn't make friends very easily. I was a very quiet child. I was very reserved, um, and I was actually the the child in my family that people thought was pretty stupid um, because I didn't talk a lot. Um, I was very observant, um, highly intelligent, but very observant, very quiet. So, anyways, through elementary school, I didn't necessarily have any trouble doing anything. Um, I didn't have necessarily have any trouble with friends or anything of that nature. Uh, it wasn't until middle school that I started really experiencing, um, bullying and it was coming from both sides. So when I was going home, I remember my stepfather broke a spatula over my head. Um, one time there was, um, a time when he, I remember one morning we used to clean up our house. We had at what was called a household day every Saturday. And, um, I remember one day I was really, I was really tired and we would wake up really early. And so when the rest of my siblings were finishing their 
breakfast, I had laid down across the chairs and my, my stepfather comes out of nowhere and he grabs me by the jacket. I was wearing my letterman's jacket. He picks me up and he shakes me really hard. And then he takes me across the kitchen and slams my back against the wall. And then he dragged me all the way down the hallway out through our, um, through our entryway. And then he threw me down on the stairs and, and I was terrified. I, I didn't, I wasn't, I don't know what happened. And then he screamed at me and he said, are you awake now? And I just remember looking at him and, and crying. And all I could do was, was cry. I, I didn't know. It's not something my dad would have ever done to me. I, I didn't know how to respond. I didn't know what to say. And then, and then there were things that he would do like at a very early age, at the age of 10 years old, he started talking to me about my body and what men like um, and how to dress. And when I was a young girl, he took me to Victoria's Secret and he bought me my first thong and he told me not to tell my mom about it. Um, but then he would take me out and he would um, talk to me about my mom, my mom and his sex life as early as um, nine, 10 years old. Uh, and he would tell me how my mom wouldn't please him anymore and how like things that I, he had no business talking to me about. Um, so there was all of this stuff going on at home. My mom, my mom, um, she turned the other cheek. Yeah, she was afraid of of being a single mother. I think uh, she had. There were six of us. Uh, I think she was very afraid of being a single mother of six children, um, and so she let a lot of things happen. Um, and then I would go to school, and um, kids would throw rocks at me, and uh, I was bullied. I would eat lunch in the bathroom because. Um, girls would walk up and hit me. Uh, I was such a quiet kid. I, it, it, it really, I don't know where it came from. Kids would, um, come up with rumors about me saying that I was, you know, having sex and all this stuff. And I didn't even know what that was at that age. Um, I got jumped in a parking lot one time by a group of girls, um, in front of almost the whole middle school. And, um, and then I would go home and I would go home to this volatile home life, home situation. And um, we had a two story house. And I remember I would sit on the edge of the window at night. I would open my window and I would sit there and I would just dangle my feet over. And I remember being really angry because I knew that if I jumped, the fall wouldn't kill me. And I was very upset about that. And, uh, because I didn't feel like anybody wanted me. I didn't feel like, uh, I didn't feel like the world wanted me. Um, so I developed different coping skills and actually I started, I started cutting myself. Um, I would keep this little piece of ceramic glass that I broke once. Uh, and I would keep it up above my bed in this little box. Um, and whenever, I was feeling overwhelming emotions. I would take it out and I would um, slice my arm open. Um, and I actually have a, a scar. I don't know if you can see it. It's pretty thick. It's like right here. 
but um, you can't see it because of my vitiligo now, but it was, um, it was a very difficult time because when I would cut myself in my mind, in my teenage mind, I could understand that pain. I knew where it came from. I knew it was going to heal. Eventually, I knew the healing process was that it was going to hurt. It was going to scab over and it was going to turn into a scar. And nothing that I did was going to change that. There was nothing I needed to figure out about that pain. Um, and so a lot of people, you know, make fun of people who cut themselves. But at the end of the day, it's one of the only ways that you can make sense of pain. And in my young mind, having already at, at that age dealt with so much pain, um, it was the only thing that I could do. And um, luckily, I did find uh, journaling and I was an avid reader, I think, my, my stepfather built a library in our home at the time, and I had read every single book in our library three times. Uh, I was gifted when I was in elementary school. I was reading at a collegiate level when I was in sixth grade, and it was my way to escape. So I would hide under my bed, and I would read for hours and hours on end because um, getting to know characters and getting to know their stories and, and seeing some of the difficult things they go through helped me to really make sense of what I was going through. And so I would always like a like in my, my life to their, to theirs. It's like, if they can get through it, I can too. I can do this and I can do this. And so it was hard because it was coming at me from all angles and sides. Um, my father's family, my biological dad, he, um, he never abused me, but he also wasn't very accepting of me either. He also, I, I developed a lot of rejection and abandonment issues um, because of that. And it was weird because my stepfather was very, uh, he was a sociopath. So he would do, use psychological abuse. So what my parents would do is when I had a performance or a recital, they would get us really excited. They would say, your dad's coming. He said he's coming, but they wouldn't tell him. So they would tell us that he was coming and then they wouldn't tell my dad that I had a performance. And so what it made it, and then he wouldn't show up. And so what it made it seem like is that they, that he said he was coming and he just didn't show up. So for my whole life, I thought that my dad didn't want me. And it actually wasn't until I was 27 that I had a conversation with him that I found out that they never told him about any of my performances at all. They were, they were that hellbent on, on, convincing me that my dad did not want me um, when actually my dad would have done anything to be part of my life. Um, but that didn't stop my dad from uh, being uh, very judgmental of me. I come from what people consider the ghetto. Uh, I come from you know, Los Angeles County, and I grew up in a bad area, and I have friends who are black, and I'm black. My mother is a mixed race, and on that side of my family, they're white, and so um, I also had to deal with a lot in the way of racial dismissiveness on the side on that side of my family, which was very confusing because even as as fair skinned as I am for someone who's brown. Um, I still had to deal with a good amount of racial 
tension um, being the black granddaughter of a white woman. Uh, my grandmother is white and um, she often dismisses me. My, my mother is black um, and she often dismisses um, my heritage. And so where, where I come from is predominantly black. And so my dad would make fun of the way that I dress and the way that I, where I'm from. And so I never felt like I fit in anywhere. Like there was anywhere that I belong, not at home with my mom, um, not with my father, not at school. There was like nowhere. I genuinely felt my whole life like, what am I even doing here? Um, like, what is this for? Like, and I remember crying, just asking God, like, what? what is this? Why? Why am I here? Um, little did I know at that point in time, you know, things were happening for me and not to me. Um, and I would come to realize that much later in life. So I made it through high school. Um, through high school, I became a bully. I became a vicious, vicious bully uh, because I was tired. In, in my school where I come from in, in L.A., it's eat or be eaten. And, and I was tired of being jumped. I was tired of being pushed around. I was, I was tired of it. And when I was actually younger, I have a, I have a twin brother. Um, and my twin brother is like my best friend. When I was a, when I was a kid, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even open my eyes in the morning until my twin brother came in the room and told me he was there. And, and, um, he's, he's my best friend. He's, I'm literally the only person I can say I've known my whole life. Um, so he was taken, um, he was taken away from me my, by my stepfather and my mom. Um, and one Christmas, and this is how bad it was. This, this is actually a really difficult story for me to tell because it kind of lays the groundwork for how I became a bully. Um, when I was being bullied, me and my twin brother were bullied together, but we had each other. Um, and my twin brother, where I was really quiet, my twin brother was extremely outspoken and he was very much against the things that my stepdad was doing and he had no issues telling him that. And so my brother was seen as the problem child and he was treated that way. So one Christmas when um, we were, everyone was opening gifts and I remember my twin brother didn't get any gifts. And my stepfather and my mom were like, oh, don't worry, don't worry. You're going to get, you're going to get your presents. You have something special. We have something very special for you that nobody else got. So Brandon was like, okay, great. Like, that's awesome. He was super, super excited. And we were like, what is he getting? So towards the end of the night, usually at Christmas time, we had three rounds of presents. They would split up our presents so that we open presents in the morning, in the afternoon, and, and at night. So Christmas was a whole day thing instead of just opening presents in the morning. And um, so we went through our rounds of presents and, and after our second round, they were like, okay, this is where Brennan gets his gift. And so we all got dressed. They told us to get dressed. We got in the car and my mom drove us to the airport and she had a box with her um, and we went into this terminal and we're all waiting there thinking that we're waiting for somebody. We thought our cousin was coming to visit us. Um, but no, she handed my brother this box and she said, we don't want you here anymore. And it had his birth certificate, his shot records and his boarding pass. And I will never forget. I will never forget 
realizing that she was sending my brother away from his family, from everything that he'd ever known, all because he had the gall to question and challenge my stepfather. And they sent my brother away. The only person that I ever felt safe with that I, and uh, she sent my brother away. And um, we uh, talk about it sometimes to this day. And he's like, he tells me all the time, Bailey, I don't think you know it. And I was like, no, I know. Like, he was like, I was sent away without being able to say goodbye. Everything that I had known, my friends, my family, my brothers, my sisters. Uh, and I was sent to live with my dad. He was sent to another state to live with our dad. Uh, he went to a different school. And um, and it was, it was I, I don't remember a time in my life where I ever felt more alone. Uh, that following week, we went back to school from break, and all of a sudden, the world was, like, empty. I didn't know what to do. I didn't have anyone to talk to, and my brother was 3,000 miles away, 400 miles away in another state, and um, I was alone. And so... My brother and I, our relationship didn't even come back together. We ended up becoming complete strangers to each other over time. Um, that relationship, because we started going to different schools, um, my brother started dealing with deep, deep depressions, and I was dealing with deep, deep depressions. But for a long time, we weren't even allowed to talk. Um, we weren't allowed to speak to him. My stepfather was, he was ruthless. He was the biggest monster under my bed and the biggest skeleton in my closet. And he, he took my brother away from me. And that's still such a hard thing to talk about um, because mine and my brother's relationship didn't get back to that until this year. <laughs> that's, how long, uh, that's how long that effect lasted. So that's when I became, I, I, in high school, um, going through it and losing my brother, my sanity, dealing with my younger brother because of everything that we went through. My older brother had bipolar schizophrenia. My, young, my younger brother had bipolar. There were arguments and fights inside of our house that resulted in blood everywhere, police being called. It was, it was terrible. It was terrible. Um, and so, you know, my stepdad would, would pit us against each other. I remember walking, I would walk, we, we had to walk to and from school. And um, I remember turning the corner and seeing that house and my whole entire heart would just drop because it was like going into that space, going into that energy. Um, and so it wasn't until they sent my brother away in seventh grade. And I was alone on my own until my sophomore year. Um, and, I, and what saved my life in high school was meeting my best friend. Um, she's been my best friend for 17 years. And um, we met in high school. She was, um, she was bullied and I was bullied and we kind of came together and um, we were two peas in a pod, been that way ever since. And we both became pretty 
cutthroat like bullies together. Um, she, she, she is, we're just like each other, except that I am, I'm more quiet. Whereas she has no, she's very, she's very out there about, she's very loud, very like grab you like by the neck and, you know, like shake you if you cross her. Um, and so she really taught me how to speak up. Uh, she was the first person who ever taught me that it was okay to use my voice. And, um, my parents did not like that about her. They did not like that about her. So during this time, um, in high school with her, my sophomore year, I was raped. Um, I was raped in a room full of my classmates by a boy on the basketball team. Um, and, and, um, they, uh, after that I developed a, a sex addiction, um, because I, didn't my self-worth was already really low <laughs> at that point and then to be raped in a room full of guys laughing uh and telling you to calm down and telling you to relax and and watching you being brutalized um i remember all i could remember was laughing because i went somewhere else i I knew what was happening to me, but I couldn't bring myself to acknowledge it in the moment. Even when I was, I had a delayed response. Even when I was standing in the bathroom after, it's almost like these flashes, like it's like a flash. We're walking into a room, a flash. They like push my best friend against the wall and held her down. And then a flash and there's like all this stuff happening. And then another flash and there's blood everywhere. It's all over my hands. It's, it's everywhere. And and then we're sitting in the car and uh, they're taking us home. And the guy who did it was drunk and he was like breathing in my ear and he was saying he was sorry. And, and I remember at that point in time is when I really developed, like even to this day, I don't like to be touched. I don't like to be touched unless I, unless I explicitly let somebody know that it's okay to touch me. Um, not just because of the abuse, but because of what happened to me. Um, it was very difficult. And so after that, I developed a very toxic promiscuity in high school um, because I didn't, I didn't care. I would sneak out at, at night and I would walk around and I would hope somebody would pick me up and kidnap me and take me and do whatever they wanted with me because I did not value my life. Um, I did not value my life after that. I had no sense of self, no sense of self-worth, no, um, I, and, and after having conversation after conversation with my stepdad about what men like, my, my self-worth was completely based in sex and what I could offer somebody physically. And it was the only way that I could fill this, this hole. Like for, for just a moment, I was, some, I was everything that somebody wanted for just a few moments. And once it was done, I felt disgusted with myself and I didn't know how to stop it. Um, so I, I was that way. And, and I, 
I became the type of person that just did not care. I would have one night stands with people. I didn't know where they'd been. I didn't know who they'd been with and I didn't care. Um, so in, after high school, you know, I had a boyfriend and I, I moved to, uh, Arizona. I, I got to the point where, um, I just didn't move with my mom even like I, I moved to Arizona with my dad when I graduated and my stepfather ended up cheating on my mom and she came and told us right before I left. And, um, I remember looking at her and I was like, Oh, well, I didn't care. I had absolutely no sympathy for her. And me and my mom at that point in time did not, we did not have a mother daughter relationship like that. We, I did not get along with my mom. I remember telling her at one point in time, I said, fuck what you're going through. Sorry, excuse my language. But I told her that because I was like, I don't care about you. I hate you. I told my mom when I was an adult that I hated her and I did um, vehemently. <laughs> so afterwards, I moved away from home. I couldn't get away from there fast enough. I moved in with my dad and um, him and I have a very surface relationship. My dad does not call to talk to me. He doesn't ask me about my day. He doesn't want to know. And when we get into arguments, and fights he just tells me that I sound like my mom and um and then he shuts down he's like you sound just like your mom and then he just goes away I, I remind him too much of my mom and and she caused him a lot of pain when he he took us away and, and I think he knows it's not my fault but I think he also can't help but hear her in my voice and um see her in my face and it's really sad um it's really sad and actually even yet the other day I had a, a a little breakdown because I was watching a movie with my daughter called The Little Princess and um me and my stepdad used to watch it all the time and the dad is he adores his his little girl and um I realized that I've never known what that's like I don't know what that's like I don't know what it's like to have um a man care about me I don't I don't know what that feels like not from a, a paternal figure not intimately I, I just have never experienced it so when I think see things like that it feels so foreign to me um I just don't know and um so after moving in with him I moved in with my boyfriend at the time we moved over there after high school and and then we broke up and, and I, uh, my dad and I just kind of had this domestic uh, life where we didn't really connect or do anything together. He's a photographer, so he would take me to go on photo shoots and things like that with him and I would be his assistant. Um, but whenever we were in the car, we would just sit kind of in silence, listen to music, nothing, nothing crazy. So then I ended up moving back home to California and, um, you know, again, this was like, so coming from this whole long childhood of trauma, and then I have like this little brief respite for maybe nine months of my life. Um, and I moved back home to California uh, after I broke up with my boyfriend, and, and we both came back home to California. And I got a, a job at a marketing firm, and at this marketing firm was my very first um, experience aside from when I was in sports, I was in sports all through high school. I, I was a competitive cheerleader. Um, it was the first lesson that I ever, uh, had with accountability and, um, it helped me to really strengthen my mindset being part of sports, but outside of high school, um, Outside of high school, uh, I got a job at a marketing firm and I was only 18, 17 turning 18. And, um, 
I was really good at sales. It was hardcore cold sales. It was knocking on doors um, to sell AT&T Ubers. And um, I became the, I was number seven out of 7,000 reps on the West Coast at 17. So yeah, it was, it was really, uh, I realized that I had a really uh, strong affinity for speaking to people uh, for leadership, for um, leadership development. It was my first introduction to personal development books um, because the whole entire, um, the whole entire point of the marketing chain was to build a team. So you had to learn the, not only did you have to learn the sales tactics and structures and leadership development, but you had to teach it um, and you had to recruit. So I was really good at it. I was recruiting people who were 20 years my senior and I was training them and I was doing it very confidently and I was out there in the field and I was hitting my numbers and it was, it was, it was really great. And it, um, but it was also one of those really strange times where I was still young. I was like 17, 18 years old and I didn't know anything about managing money. I didn't know anything about, you know, so I was really terrible with it. I couch surfed for a little while, ended up in an, in an apartment. And so for, for those nine months, I was, I was working there. And then finally, it, it was crazy because they, um, they asked me to be on a new campaign on the East Coast, and they were like, "You're one of our best." Um, so I live on the West Coast. So they they said, "You know, we we have a a new campaign with Verizon on the East Coast in New York, and, and we would love for you to join, and we'll pay for the move and everything." So here I was, little eighteen year old Bailey, being offered this massive uh, position on on a totally different side of the country than I've ever been on. Um, and so I called my mom and I was like, Hey, I have really great news. And she's like, Oh, we have great news too. Uh, and, um, so she was like, you go first. And I told her, I was like, uh, I'm moving to New Jersey. I'm going to go train for a new campaign. And she's like, Oh my God, congratulations, blah, blah, blah. And then, and then she goes, um, we're moving to China. And I was like, what? And, and she was like, yeah, she was like, we're moving to Fuzhou. We're moving to this little province in China. And, uh, and, and I was a little like taken aback because I was like, because I, I literally asked her, I was like, China, China, or like Chinatown, China? Like, are you talking about like the real, like the place, China? And she was like, yeah. And, and all in, in one fell swoop, um, my safety net was taken out from under me. So if anything happened to me, I had nowhere to go. I was 17 to 18 years old dealing with that reality of like, whoa, like, uh, you're leaving the country. What do you mean? They sold our childhood home. We had lived there for 13 years. Everything that I knew was gone all of a sudden. And that was extremely hard to deal with as a young adult. Like most young adults in in America can go back home. Like if they fail, if they need help, like they can go live with their parents. Like we all of a sudden me and my brothers didn't have that. And um, me and my twin brother had to really make it on our own. We, we had no other choice but to make it on our own. So I moved out to New Jersey um, and I ended up going with coworkers who I did not, I didn't like, we didn't get along. Most of them were much older than me. So it was a very interesting dynamic. Um, 
but I ended up going out there and I was so miserable and I was so homesick living on the East Coast. I've never been to the East Coast before and I, we trained in Philadelphia and then went to South Jersey or was it North Jersey? I think it was South Jersey. Um, and um, it was a change and it was hard for me to deal with. So I ended up telling them that I was going to leave. Um, and so I, I saved my last check uh, because it, it came, it became, I started having issues with my roommates and things like that. And they were very, uh, they were very mean to me. Um, so I left every, everything that I had taken, uh, packed everything up in a duffel bag and in New Jersey, I'd never been to New York before. So this was my first experience in, in truly having to like rely on my own resources to get home. I used the last of my paycheck to buy myself a plane ticket um, flying out of LaGuardia Airport, and I was in New Jersey um, at the time. So I wasn't familiar with the trains or the bus systems out there. And again, this was one of the very first times that I realized in my life that I could rely on my own wit and I could rely on um, myself to do what I needed to do to get out of the situation that I was in. And throughout my life, I had had I had have I've had to do that. I consider myself a pathfinder. No one ever came and grabbed me by the hand and was like, "Bailey, do this." I had to figure it all out on my own as early as I can remember. Um, and so what I did was I I looked up the bus schedules and everything. I didn't know anyone in New Jersey except for this lady who was doing Mary Kay, and she. Uh, I called her and I was like, I just need a ride to the train station because it was in Hoboken. It was in a different part of town that I didn't know how to get to uh, via bus. So she was the only person I could call. It took me, I almost missed my plane because of how long it took me to convince her that I wasn't running away from home, that I was going home. And because I was still 18 at the time. So she thought I was running away from home. And she was like, I can't, I don't know if you're, and I was like, so I had to call my dad because I was going back to Arizona um, and I was going to go live with my dad again. So uh, I had to get him on the phone and he had to convince her that he was really my dad and all this stuff. And I was like, lady, I just need you to take me to the, the, the freaking train station. And if you don't take me to the train station, I'm going to miss my only plane out of here. And then I'm going to be stuck in New Jersey and you're going to be responsible for that. So she finally took me to the train station and I didn't know where I was going. After I got off the train, I was terrified. I ended up at the subway. And so I was about to freak out. I was panicking because I had all my stuff with me and I was like, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know what's happening. And I, I, so I was like, okay, Bailey, think, 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 think. And I looked over to my left at the platform and I saw these people with suitcases and I walked over to them and they were from Dallas, Texas and they were super, super sweet. And I was like, are you guys by chance going to LaGuardia airport? And she was like, oh my God, yes, girl, we're going to, she was like, do you need help getting, I was like, oh my God, can I please go with you? And they were like, yes. And so I went, so God save me there um and they I, I was able to take two subway cars with them and, and they even let me take a taxi with them I didn't have to pay for um and they ended up on the same plane as me so it was really it was pretty awesome um and and I ended up being able to make it home so during this time when I made it back to Arizona I I felt like a massive failure at, but at 18 years old, like, you know, losing a job really isn't that big of a deal. You're still in the very beginning of your life. Um, 
but at that time I was like, I'm such a loser. Like I lost a job, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I, I slipped into another, uh, I met some different friends out there in Arizona, um, started drinking, partying. Um, I didn't really have much of a, like a job. I was living with my dad at the time and he wasn't making me pay rent. So I was really kind of just irresponsible. I was having a lot of like really terrible one night stands and, and doing different kinds of drugs and, um, just living my life in a blur. I just remember it was like always doing something, always going somewhere, meeting new people, doing promiscuous things, doing stupid things, getting pulled over, getting in trouble with the cops, like all kinds of stuff. Um, and then I met my ex-husband, um, and I met him at the age of 19. Um, so my ex-husband and I went to school together. He, we went to high school together and he had a, a really big crush on me in high school and we connected through Facebook. Um, what I know now is there was nothing, there was nothing based in real, like actual love. It was very much a lustful connection. Um, he was in the military, so he was stationed in North Carolina in Camp Lejeune. And so a lot of our interaction was via Skype. Um, and during that time, my dad and I were really bumping heads because again, I just reminded him of my mom and, and we, we just didn't always, we just didn't always get along. Um, and he kind of just left me to my own devices and, and, um, I felt very alone during that time. So I kind of latched onto my, um, ex-husband. We did not date for very long. We talked over Skype for like four months and then we met up when we both went home to California to visit for a rave. Um, and then he went back to North Carolina and he didn't really even propose to me. He wanted to get, he wanted me to be on his phone plan, but he was like, if you want me to take care of you, we have to get married. And I was like, okay, I didn't tell anyone in my family until after it happened. I didn't say anything to anyone. Uh, the reason why my dad found out is because the night that I went to the airport, left for the airport um, to go to North Carolina to get married, I left a note on his mirror. That's how I told him. And my, even my twin brother found out through Facebook. All my family, my best friend, everyone found out through Facebook. I just posted that we got married. Most of them didn't even know me and him were dating. They had no idea. Um, so we met in California. Then he came out and visit, visited me for my birthday. And then after that, we, we got married. Um, so literally, I got married. Uh, and I was there for two weeks. I came back home two weeks later. I found out I was pregnant. He shipped off to Afghanistan uh, three weeks after that. So I was a new wife. I was a new mother. And my now new husband, who him and I had never lived with each other. We never got to know each other. We didn't know anything about each other, really. Um, we were married and expecting a child and he was in a war zone and I took a teaching position in upstate New York, um, at a, at a, uh, a meditation school called a, a Kanajahari Sahaja yoga school for, um, kindergarten for kids. So it was like, it was a preschool and kindergarten. Um, and I was a teacher for a three month term. Uh, and I was, uh, newly married, newly pregnant. So, you know, a meditative state area wasn't necessarily the worst place to be in, but it was a very dogmatic, uh, religion, religion based, uh, meditation practice, um, based in, in, uh, Indian culture, Hindi. Um, and so I learned a lot about 
about Indian culture, but uh, I also experienced a lot of extreme uh, judgment there. It was very, uh, it was very difficult, very challenging um, for me to be there. A lot of people judged me um, pretty harshly. I'd never been in a meditation collective before. So uh, the way that I was did not match up with uh, the way that they were or the way that they were used to being. And instead of teaching me or guiding me, they judged me pretty harshly. Um, and uh, it ended up being a pretty tense situation. And so after that three months, uh, I went back home and I was, you know, my ex-husband was over. He was overseas until three days before our son was born, my oldest son. Um, we didn't know if he was going to be home on time. Um, so at 34 weeks pregnant, my mom flew back home from China and I had to move across country at 34 weeks pregnant. Um, I literally, cause I wanted to, I wanted him to come home to a home and all that stuff. We didn't have anything. So I found a house. I got us into a house. I got a, a car. I got everything. Um, and we drove across, across country, um, moved into the house. And then a week later after we moved into the house, he, he shipped home and, um, and three days after he got back, I gave birth to my son, uh, my oldest son, Kai. And from there, shit just hit the fan, um, to say the very least. We were driving home, actually. My son had to spend three days in the um, NICU because he had a heart murmur when he was born. Uh, and so he couldn't come home immediately. Uh, one, we, but the night before we went to go get him, I remember when I realized what I'd gotten myself into. Um, we were driving home from a sushi date because I was pregnant. I couldn't eat sushi for the whole time, and I really wanted sushi. So we went out. We had sushi, and uh, we were driving home. And I was just looking out the out the window, and I was thinking about my son, and I couldn't wait to go get him in the morning. And my ex husband turns to me, and he he looks me, and he says, "You know." if you ever cheated on me, I would kill you. And he was like, he was like, I would shoot you in the head. And then I would shoot the other dude in the head. And then I would go to jail and our son would be an orphan. And I looked at him and I was like, why would you say that? And I was like, what? And I started looking, I was like, what made you say that? We are literally driving through like the most beautiful landscape right now. And that comes out of your mouth. I was completely floored that he could say something like that to me. Um, and, and I was like, and it was for the very first time that I ever looked at him and I was actually kind of afraid. I was like, okay. And so uh, throughout our relationship, he would come to have this obsession with me cheating on him. And I never did. But to the point where even when I was pregnant, I would wake up in the middle of the night and he would be sitting across the room on like a whatever across the room and I remember one night waking up and and he was just looking at me and I was pregnant at the time with our um for this one with our daughter and he was like he had this angry look on his face and I was like what's wrong and and he was like you don't know what I just did to you in our dream right now when I found you cheating on me he wouldn't speak to me for a week because of this dream um because of whatever I did in this dream and he told me that the way that he killed me was um, was like, he was like what I'm capable of doing to you. He was, and he was, the way he was staring at me was incredibly, um, scary. So going back, um, from that point on, once my son came home, 
uh, it was just, he was a very abusive man. Um, he would talk down to me. He would scream at me. He would, he, uh, the first time that he ever put his hands on me was, um, in front of my son, um, holding my son. Um, and he would, he would, he did it with each one of our children. Um, so the whole entire relationship was extremely, extremely controlling, extremely, extremely abusive. If I was working, I was cheating on him. If I wasn't working and I was at home, then I wasn't bringing anything to the table. Um, so if over the course of eight years, uh, nine years of this, uh, I was back and forth between his house and my dad's house and my dad and I would get in these huge arguments and I would come back and live with my ex-husband and my ex-husband and I would get in these arguments and I would go back and live with my dad. And I, we finally got divorced in 2014 after, uh, uh, the state of Arizona picked up charges against him for abuse. Um, and, um, he kept trying to get back into my life uh, he, he couldn't ever really let me go. He was very controlling, very possessive of me. Um, and during this time actually was when my, my, um, this was during the time that my vitiligo started. I didn't develop vitiligo until I was 19. Um, and vitiligo is an autoimmune disorder where your white blood cells attack your melanin because it, it doesn't have the ability. It overrides your body's ability to recognize that your melanin is not an infectious disease. And so you, your body produces a surplus of white blood cells and it attacks your melanin and you lose, um, skin color. And what makes it, what makes it spread is stress and hormones. So with, with every single pregnancy, um, with my son, Jax, I went through an incredible amount of abuse. Um, to the point where I was hospitalized and I almost miscarried him, um, no less than four times. Uh, and then I was put on bed rest. I had to take steroid pills and they gave me steroid shots. And, uh, my baby was born with autism and a lot of uh, developmental challenges because of, because of this. And, uh, it was one of my most difficult pregnancies. He's my middle, my middle son. Um, uh, and he's a, he's a really smart boy, but, um, we went through a lot with him. And so, uh, that's when we got divorced was the year that I had my son Jax. And, um, for example, the, the things that he would do like on mother's day that year, um, you know, this is when you celebrate the, the mother of your children, your own mother. Uh, and you would think it would be something that would be really nice. Um, no, I went on a, I went on a hike that morning. Um, I had just had Jack. So I was like 200 pounds. I, um, with each of my pregnancies, I got up to almost 200 pounds and came back, uh, each time, um, because of my affinity to fitness. And I eventually got in school for it. But, um, I remember walking in the door and he had been on the phone with his mom for like three hours, which I didn't mind, but he didn't say anything to me. And so he comes out and he looks at me and he goes, by the way, you smell like shit and your breath stinks. And he walked out and left and he was gone the whole day. Um, and it was it, and, uh, that's just one example of the things that the things that he would do, uh, uh, to go out of his way to just, he would tell me things about like, he would tell me that I was worthless, that I was disgusting to him, that, 
you know, that I would always use him. I would always need him, that I would never be this strong woman that I think I am. And he would say really terrible things to me. He was like this whole entire strength thing. He was like, people are going to see right through that because you're, you're not shit. He was like, you're not anything. And no one's ever going to see you as anything. You're just a fake. Like you're, and, and for a long time, I believed him. And it's almost hard to believe that, you know, five years ago, I was this man's wife and my whole entire existence was being his wife, sitting at home, being his wife and, and doing nothing but wanting to make him happy. And he would kick me out. I was homeless so many times because he would kick me out. Um, one day when I was in school, I, I came home from work and I started school at 5 p.m. I came home at 2.30. He came home with a U-Haul truck and he was like, we're moving. He was like, you have you have till four o'clock to get all your shit in a U-Haul. You're not moving it into the new apartment. You're going to sleep on the floor in the living room until you find a new living situation. I'm going to give the kids the master bedroom and I'm going to take the other room and you can sleep on the floor in the living room. Um, so he, he moved my half of the things into a storage unit. And then um, I was homeless so many times because he would kick us out. And he would make me take the kids with him because he was too busy doing his own things to take care of them. So I would take them. And they, would, they were always with, with mommy. They were always with me. And um, so this was a cycle, in and out cycle, around and around and around and around we go. He would kick me out and then he would come begging for me back six weeks later. And then, you know, three months would go by and he would kick me out. And then we would find we were out, we were pregnant when we were breaking up and then we would get back together. And that's literally how it happened for like eight years after, even after we got divorced in 2014, there, it was just a mess. It was what I like to call a dumpster fire. Um, so after we found out Jax was born, was coming, we decided to reconcile again. And then Jax was born and in and out, in and out, in and out. And then we found out that my daughter was coming when we were finally like ready to like break it off and, and call it even. I passed out in a T-Mobile, went to the hospital. They'd rushed me to the ER and um, the nurse comes in and um, she was like, oh, congratulations. And I was like, what? And she was like, oh, she was like, I thought the doctor was already in here. They said the doctor came in and told you. And she's like, well, um, she was like, you're 11 weeks pregnant. And I was like, whoa I was like what do you mean 11 weeks pregnant and I was like I don't understand what you're talking what are you talking about and I remember having that conversation with my ex-husband I was like I was like we need to talk because we were living together at the time but we were not together I was sleeping in the living room again and he was in the master bedroom and we were just kind of doing our own thing and uh, kind of living around each other um I told him I was like I'm pregnant and he was like what do you mean and I was like yep, I'm pregnant. And he was like, is it mine? And I was like, please don't insult me. Um, of course it is. And, and then we had to give it another go. Um, because all of a sudden you're pregnant. And then, you know, four weeks later we found out it was a girl and we were both just over the moon about it because he was having a girl. He wasn't as um, abusive. He, we got in a few yelling matches, but once my belly started showing, he became really, um, really attentive um, during that pregnancy. She was my heaviest baby. She was my healthiest baby. Um, so she was like, she was our little, our little angel baby. And so when she was born in 2017, 
comes the end of that long um, journey and only jumped into a new one. So actually in 2017, I moved into a house with two of my worst abusers, my ex-husband and my stepfather, because my, my mom and my stepdad moved back from China and they had decided that they wanted to help me. And, um, I would come to find out much later that they wanted to use me for the benefits that they knew I was going to be able to get, which they did try and steal. Um, my stepfather actually tried to steal those. My mom was blissfully unaware because that's what she did during that time. And, um, so I ended up moving back to California. That's how I ended up back out here and why I'm still out here now in 2017, I moved in with the two most abusive men in my life. And that was a situation that I still don't even know how to explain. So my stepfather had not seen me since I was 17 years old. I moved out of the house when I was 17. Um, and I was working at that marketing firm at the time. So I wasn't living at home. Um, so the last time that he dealt with me, I was a 17 year old teenager. And now I'm moving back into his home as a 27 year old woman. Um, 10 years had passed since this man had ever lived in the same house as me. And now I'm moving back in at the same age. My mom was 27 years old when my, when she started cheating on my dad with my stepfather. Um, she was the same age as me. She looked exactly like me. She talked exactly like me. And, um, my stepfather picked up on that instantly. Uh, and little did he know, uh, he was still dealing with me as if I was a teenager. Um, so when he started hitting on me and he started making sexual passes at me in the house, um, he thought that I was oblivious to it without ever realizing that I had been out in the world for 10 years dealing with men just like him. Um, <laughs> and he started saying things like when it, almost immediately, I remember my, my ex-husband moved in with us because they wanted me to pay rent and he got his military benefits. So he was going to use those. He was really supposed to be living across town with a friend um, who was renting him a room um, so that we could reconcile while not living in the same like vicinity as each other so we could come back together slowly. Um, but that didn't end up happening because they needed us to pay rent. So anyways... Him living in there, my stepfather became absolutely obsessed with him um, it, to, a, to a, a very dangerous point um, where at first it was going into the house and, and him and I would have a date night and my mom would watch my kids and I would come in and my stepdad would look at me, like stand next to me and, and kind of like brush my shoulder and, he, and he'd tell me, so did you guys fuck in the car? And that's actually what he said. Yeah. And I remember looking at him like, what? This is somebody who had put himself in my life as my father. And all of a sudden he's making these derogatory remarks to me. But then also I noticed, um, he would start, he was looking at me in certain ways. And I noticed it when we went to the gym. Um, and I, I remember I was, I was in the squat rack and in, in the squat rack, there's always like a mirror in front so you could spot your posture. So I was getting ready to go in, I think for like my third set, and I was going to spot, spot myself. And I looked in my peripheral vision and behind me, all the way back, standing next to the locker was my stepdad. And he was just watching me. He was standing there with his arms crossed like this and he was watching me. And, and I, 
I looked and I did my set and I looked again and he was still watching me and I did it something different and I looked again and he was still standing there. And, um, and it was really weird. And so then, um, one him and my ex-husband being the abusive creatures that they are, they started butting heads. And my ex-husband is very openly like aggressive and like really violent. Whereas my stepdad is sociopathic and very like, he's, he takes pride in the fact that he can make people believe that he's their friend in order to get his agenda, um, in order to do what it is that he needs to do. And he prides himself on this false sense of being smarter than everybody else. But what he forgot is that I grew up with him. What he forgot was that I grew up watching him do exactly what he started doing to me. Um, and so this again, um, became something where I became hyper aware because what he did was he fabricated an event, uh, and he went and got a restraining order against my ex-husband so that he could not come to the house anymore. Um, so now I was at home alone, alone with my kids. Um, he started sneaking into my room at night. He started taking my diary. He started taking my legal documents. Um, and I, and he started, so my stepfather, like I said, he's a sociopath. He used to talk to a rubber duck named Zen Zen. Yeah. He had a little rubber duck about this big and he would talk to this duck, um, for hours. He would sit in his room and he would talk to this duck for hours. He was crazy. Um, and I remember he walked up to one of my friends that came to the house and he told him, he was like, you know, I had this conversation and my friend came and told me this because he was really worried about me. He was like, I need to tell you this. Um, so he got this restraining order and my ex-husband lived way across town, like nowhere near where we live, 10, 15 miles away. Um, and he worked at this barber shop. Uh, and so between the house where we lived and the barber shop, there's hundreds of barber shops. And so he tells my little brother, Shawnee, that we're, oh, let's go to, let's go to this barber shop where he knows that my ex-husband works after he got this uh, restraining order against him. And, and what alarmed me about that was my friend came to me and he was like, you want to know what your dad said to me? Um, and I was like, what? And he was like, he said he had a conversation with this duck dude. And he was like, he said, he said, imagine you have a gun. And he was like, imagine you take that somebody has something that you want. And so you take this gun and you go to them and you shoot them in the head. And then all of a the sudden, they're not a problem in the situation anymore. And he was like, do you think that? He was like, what do you think about that? And my friend was like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what you want me to say to that. And um, he was, it was really alarming. And at that point in time, I had known that he was doing things like that because I, I would wake up and find my journals outside. Like I, I always write in a journal. Like I was saying earlier, I developed an affinity for writing at a very young age. So he would take my journals and he would read them and then he wouldn't put them back. He would sneak in my room at night and he would sneak in through my window. He would go outside and sneak in through my window so that my door wouldn't open and I would find my things outside and I'd be really confused. So then one night 
I told my best friend, I was like, I feel like I'm in danger. Like, I feel like I'm in danger of something happening because when I say he became obsessed with me, he became obsessed with me and with my ex-husband to a very scary, very scary point. And I told her, I was like, I feel like either I'm going to end up raped or I'm going to end up dead. That's what I told her. And, and so like I said, I had grown up with my stepfather. So I knew, I knew what he was doing because he pulled me into, into the room one day and he had like this bright light on and all the rest of the lights were off. And he said, come here. And I, I went in there and I had to prepare myself. I was like, I know he's going to try and do this because he used to do this to me when I was a kid. Like, this is how he would use these scare tactics. But he still, the problem was that he was still dealing, he was still dealing with me as if I was a child. And he was not giving any credit to the fact that I was a grown woman, fully capable of understanding exactly what it was that he was doing. And again, I was the kid when I was a when I was younger that everyone considered stupid because I was quiet. So he didn't even know that my faculties of intellect and observation were as sharp as they were because I spent my whole entire childhood honing those things. Um, and, and they're literally my superpower. My power of observation is pretty keen. And so, and he didn't ever give me that credit because again, his Achilles heel is that he thinks that he's smarter than everybody and he doesn't give credit to the people who can figure him out. And so I knew, I told myself, I was like, my only advantage right now is that he thinks I'm too stupid to figure out what he's doing. So he pulls me into the room and he has this file folder and I'm, I lean myself back against the door and I'm very determined to stay calm. I'm like, whatever, I know he's trying to pull me out of character, whatever he does, just don't react. And I was like, don't react. He's expecting you to, he does not think you're smart. So let him think you're stupid. It's okay. It's okay. You need to hide behind the guise of stupidity right now um, so that you can figure out a way to get out without alerting him to the fact that you know, because one of the things that you learn as a woman is that when a man is preying on you, when you alert him to the fact that you're aware of that before you can do something about it, oftentimes it causes him to take action before you can get out. Um, and so he has this file folder. And he starts flipping through. He goes, I see in 2000, da, 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 you and Manny this and you and Manny that. And he starts flipping through. He's like, oh, and I see here. And he starts going through nine years of mine and Manny's relationship that he says that he got from public record, but he didn't. He got it from the stolen court documents from my, my and my journals where I had talked very explicitly about some of the problems that Manny and I were having. Again, he didn't know that I realized this. So, and he was like, weird, huh? And I was like, yeah, I was like, that is weird. And I was like, that's very weird. And he was like, you don't have anything to say about that? And I was like, no. I was like, I just think it's really interesting how you got those. He was like, oh, it's public record. And I was like, I'm sure it is. And, and he was like, all right. He was like, that's it. And, and then he walked out. And so again, I'm walking around this house, freaking out nearly every single day, acting as if everything is normal because I didn't have anywhere to go. So I had called my ex-husband and I told him what was happening. And, I, and uh, he had a restraining one at the time, but he was very concerned with uh, our safety. And so he was like, you know what, move back in, move in over here with, with me. And I was like, okay. I was like, but I have to be smart about this because I need to be able to get out without alerting him to the fact that I know what he's doing. And he was getting ready to make a move. So I remember on January 25th, 2018, 
is when I was able to get out. I had been planning it for a long time. Um, and the last straw, like when I realized I really had to get out was um, I smoke cannabis um, for my PTSD and for my anxiety. And so when my kids were sleeping, I went outside. I would go to go outside um, so that I could, I was just feeling really like, I was feeling really weird that night. And you know, when you walk out of a room and your eyes take a little while to adjust to like the darkness, you can't really see. So I walked out of the hallway. So when you walk out of the hallway, the, the back door is that way. So Paul was standing here and I come out of this hallway and it's dark so I can't see him and the and behind me is the door so when I came out of this hallway all of a sudden the hallways to my side the door is to my back and he's standing directly in front of me in the pitch black darkness in the house and I almost walked into him but he opened his laptop really quickly and he has like a Mac and like the light just shining he was like hey and I was like oh my god I was like what are you doing and and he was like, I had this conversation with Zen Zen. And this is what he said. And he opens his laptop and he starts reading this long thing that he talked to Zen Zen the duck about, um, about how when you want something with somebody who doesn't want the same thing with you and, and how, how do you get that from somebody? And I, I thought he was talking about my mom. And I was like, that's weird. Why would you say that? Like, you're married to my mom. What do you mean? Um, but he was talking about me. He was talking about me. And I didn't even realize that because then he was like, what do you think about that? And I was like, I don't know. Like I, I am still tripping at the fact that you're standing in this dark entryway with your laptop waiting for me to come out of the room. Uh, and, and I didn't say that, but I was like, I didn't, I, I don't, I was like, I don't, I don't know. I was like, I need, I need to process that. And he was like, he was like, Hmm. Okay. Closed his laptop. And then went to go sit on the couch in the dark. It, it was the weirdest thing I ever experienced. I was like, okay. And, and I was like, I need to figure something out. So then I created this plan with my ex-husband and on January 25th, and I did not tell him on January 25th, I took all of my very important, the most important things and I moved in with my ex-husband and I sent my parents a text message and I said, I'm going to be coming with the police escort. My stepfather was livid. He was so angry that I got away and I got away before he could do anything. That's when it confirmed for me everything that I thought because he told me he said you better bring a police escort he was like for your own safety he was like you better come to this house with a police escort he was so mad and it was a very silent very still anger like his anger was not aggressive it was dangerous it was very very dangerous um he's the kind of people that you see in those like psycho thrillers about like murderers who use like psychological uh, like they like to chase they like to they like to play with their victims before they they take them like he's that kind of he's that sick in the head um and so he was just very livid i remember seeing his eyes like when the police officer was there he kept looking at me and he was like he was angry he was angry and so so i got out uh on january 25th and we went to court for the false 
a restraining order that he got against my ex-husband. And we had all the proof that we were anywhere near where he said we were at all, um, but they still passed the restraining order. So that was on February, yeah, February 7th of 2018. So I was there for maybe two weeks, three weeks at the most. Um, before my ex-husband had the worst episode of abuse that I had ever experienced um, in my life. And uh, because he blamed me for what my stepfather did because he associated me with them because they were my family. Um, so even though I had nothing to do with that, he blamed me for it and he needed someone to take his anger out on. And so who did he take it out on? Uh, me. Uh, and so, that was the worst he had ever gotten. Uh, he actually, all I can remember was everything moving in slow motion. He snatched my daughter out of my hands. Um, and that morning he had been, he started yelling at me because I was walking my son who was six years old at the time, my oldest son. We had these little frozen breakfast sandwiches and I was walking him through making one. Um, and, and my ex-husband was trying to find any reason to start a fight with me because again, the day before they had ruled in my, my stepfather's favor and he had a restraining order, an active restraining order against him. And he had, he had to blame it on someone. And so he, he started nitpicking at me for, for helping my son. And, and I walked over there and I was like, what's wrong? And, and I tried to talk to him. And the calmer that I became, the more agitated he became because experience dictates. I knew if I agitated him more or if I rose to his bait, it would just make things worse. And I didn't want to do that. So I told him, I was like, can we just talk about this? And he got more and more angry to the point where he got up. He, my daughter was a baby at the time. Her birthday was on her first birthday was on February 4th, like a few days before the court case and um, four days before this actually happened. So he snatched her out of my arms and, and her head was just like, he started yelling at me. And I remember everything started, the adrenaline rush, everything started slowing down. And I could see him yelling and I could see her head like going back and forth like this because he was shaking her so violently. and. And my boy started crying because she started screaming. And the whole entire time, my, my sons are standing up against the wall and they're screaming for me. And I'm, this was a really long room. So between me and them was this wall of like boxes that we had from my stuff. And so I could see them standing against the wall and they were screaming and they were like, mom, mom, and they were crying. They didn't know what's happening. My daughter was being like really badly shaken and she was screaming. And as a mom, as he was pulling on me, he was pulling on me. He was yanking me down to the ground. He got me down to the ground. He started kicking me really hard um, to go out the door, but I couldn't feel any of it because all I could see were my kids and every single part of me, every fiber of my being was screaming to them. I'm not going anywhere. It's going to be okay. Mommy is right here. And all I could think about was getting them out of that room. And I, I remember telling him, I didn't even tell him to, him to stop. I remember just telling my kids it's okay as he's kicking me out the door. And so he, he, he gets me out the door, takes my phone. I have nothing, no shoes, nothing. Um, and, and 
there were other roommates in the house and, and the roommate next to him was a girl who was actually moved in because she was in a domestic violence situation. And she walks up to me and she's like, whatever you're doing, stop. And I was like, what? And she was like, whatever you're doing to make him mad, just stop. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, I'm not even doing anything. And she was like, he's obviously mad at you for something. And I was like, no, I was like, he's actually mad at me for no reason. Um, and, and what he just did, my, my sons were like screaming for me inside the room. And, and, and I was freaking out. I was, I was panicking. I was like at the door and I was like, I was like, please just, just let them come to me. Just, I'm not going to like take them. Just, just let them come to me. They're crying. They're scared. Uh, please, like, please. And, and he wouldn't, I could hear my kids screaming. He started yelling at them. This is what your mom gets. Shut up, shut up. And he's like yelling at them. And he's like, this is what she gets. Cause she has a and he's going crazy. He's going absolutely insane. And so I was like, again, I came to this place where I was like, if I make the wrong move right now, I could, it could take my kids. If I retaliate in any way, this could put me in a bad situation. How do I get my kids out of the situation? How do I get my kids out of the situation? And the only thing I could think of was my kids. Stay tuned for part two of the conversation. So if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so that you will be notified whenever new episodes airs. If you have any questions or feedback, or if you know someone with amazing stories to share, please send an email to hello at networkandconnect.com and I will be more than happy to connect with you. If you find this podcast helpful, please share it to your friend as well. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'm looking forward to the next one. Cheers. Bye-bye.